Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. We're looking at the book of Ephesians. That would be a letter from Paul to the Christians in Ephesus, would it, Mike? Yeah, that's right. Though it's interesting that some of the early manuscripts in in Greek didn't have in Ephesus to it. So it may well have been that as well as being a letter to Ephesus, it was designed as a bit of a circular letter for the churches in that part of what we would call modern Turkey uh, that had been established out of the base there at Ephesus. And it's a very general letter, so it could well have been a circular. But let's focus in on Ephesus itself, one of the leading cities in Asia Minor, stood at the intersection of some major trade routes there, and it had a link uh, to the Aegean Sea via the Caista River. So it was a really important commercial centre, had a population of round about 500,000, which was enormous for those days. Uh, an amazing city, fantastic buildings with uh, theatres and temples have actually stood in the ruins of the, of the open-air theatre, and it's still impressive to this day. It had a huge temple to the goddess Artemis, which was actually one of the seven wonders of the world, built in beautiful white marble, an enormous building, and uh, a huge fascination with magic and the occult there as well. And it was actually as a result of Paul preaching the gospel there in his third missionary journey, that some of the people who got saved ended up burning their magic books, which started troubling the city a little bit. Uh, and then uh, the merchants in the city who made little idols of Artemis were really worried as people started turning to the gospel because they were worried that, you know, their business was going to get affected and God forbid that religion should affect business. And there was a, a riot as a result of all of that. You can read about that in Acts 19, but it was a crazy way to start a church. So Paul's preaching actually affected the economy. Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? We often in the West these days uh, have grown up with the sort of view that religion and politics shouldn't mix is often how it's put. But, you know, you don't find that in the Bible. In fact, when you go back even into the Old Testament, religion and politics and economics definitely do mix. And if you have a faith, it has to affect how you impact the world around. And here were these people who of their own will are realizing, hang on, if I am now a follower of Jesus, I can't get engaged in magic. Actually, I need to burn these magic books and I can't buy little idols anymore. And it was such a big part of the economy because Ephesus was seen as being the guardian of the temple of Artemis and of her image, which fell to earth. We think that was probably a reference to a meteorite that fell to earth that they thought was an image of the goddess. And so this was like, this was a big thing, the temple of Artemis and all the knock-on economy that came out of that was huge and central in Ephesus. So when the gospel started impacting that, yeah, some of the people really started getting worried. And as I said, it ended up in a riot that you can read about in Acts 19. I've spotted that these letters from Paul are to, I suppose, would be called strategic cities, really. I mean, Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, these are not sort of in backwaters. No, not at all. In fact, as you 
track Paul's missionary journeys, he always went for key centers to go and preach the gospel. And his vision was to establish a church in that key regional center so that from that then the church could reach out into the sort of hinterland behind it. So you're absolutely right. It was really part of Paul's strategy to always go for the key cities that could then impact a whole region. And we know that from Ephesus, churches were planted right down the Lycus Valley and would be significant in that area. So he, he was a real strategist in his evangelism. So this letter to the Christians in Ephesus and area is sent from him. Where is he at that time? Then, where, where's, where's the letter coming from? It's commonly said in jail, though that's probably not quite correct. He's under probably what we would call these days house arrest. At the end of Acts, we find that Paul ends up getting arrested because of, here we go again, another riot, this time in Jerusalem, that the Jews had stirred up when he had gone back there at the end of his third missionary journey. And out of this riot, the Romans then had to get involved, of course, as the ruling power. Paul was arrested. He ended up having to appear before the governor and then before Herod Agrippa. And he eventually gets fed up of it and says, oh, I'm fed up of all this. I appeal to Caesar. And uh, as a Roman citizen, which is what he was, he had the right to do that. So he then has to be taken to Rome, an adventure in itself, we see in Acts. And he ends up at the end of Acts, it says that he spent two full years there under house arrest, receiving visitors, but not able to leave there. And, you know, Roman soldier there making sure that he didn't. And it's while he's there under house arrest in Rome, that he writes a number of his letters. And this one, to Ephesus, was one of those. And what's the thrust of his message? It's really about a secret, or to use the language of the time, a mystery. Now, one of the things that Ephesus had, besides its big religions, was lots of so-called mystery religions, where... You know, if you joined the group, you were given their mysteries, their secrets. And I spoke in a previous episode a, a little bit like uh, Freemasons where you're invited to join and then you revealed the secrets of the organization little by little. Well, that's what mystery religions were like. Join our club and we will let you into the secret mysteries. And really in Ephesians... Paul says very pointedly, do you know what? God has a mystery as well. God has a secret. But here's the difference. God has told his mystery to everybody. And his mystery, his secret is this, that he has a plan for the whole universe through Jesus and it's going to get worked out through the church. Is Paul wanted to call out all this sort of talk of mysteries and secrets and all the rest of it? Yeah, absolutely. I think he's showing the foolishness of it. But he's also showing us that, <laughs> do you know, he's a good evangelist. He, he's picking up an idea that was current in that population. So he's saying, you're really into mysteries? I've got a mystery for you. Here it is. God's got a plan. But he's made his mystery known in Jesus. So the whole of this letter, actually this letter stands out from many others of Paul's letters 
because he doesn't address any sort of error or heresy or there's nothing gone wrong. It is just one delightful exclamation of praise to God for what he has done in, first of all, having this secret plan, but then in making it known through Jesus to us and, and showing what a high place and a high role the church has in making this mystery known. So again, thinking context, here are all these little cults and groups in Ephesus. We've got a secret. Do you want to join us? We can't tell you till you've joined us. And here is Paul saying, let's shout out loud from the rooftops that God's mystery is now not hidden at all. It's been revealed to us in Jesus. Wow. What a contrast to the culture around. So compared to some of his other letters then, the tone is quite different. Very different. This is one of my favourite letters, I have to say. I could come back to this and read it again and again because it's just so rich and full of what God has done for us in Jesus. In fact, the, the letter sort of falls into almost two neat halves. The first three chapters are all about the church's calling who we are in Jesus and what God has done for us in Jesus. Kind of a reminder, really. Yeah. And then the second three chapters are really all about the church's conduct. If you've understood this, then this is how you will live this out and make an impact on the culture round about you. Well, let's look at the calling first of all, then. What is it that Paul wants to remind them about being church, if you like? Well, he starts out at the individual level. It's interesting how he works toward this. So he, his whole letter starts with really just to pray. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he lists some of the wonderful things that he's done for us and says, in him we've got redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he's lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he's made known to us, here it comes, the mystery of his will. And then he goes on to say about how in Jesus we were chosen, how in Jesus we've been included in God's plan, how having put our trust in Jesus we've been, he says, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until we get it. It's interesting, that word that he uses there for deposit, an arabone in the Greek, is the modern Greek word for engagement ring. The Holy Spirit is God's engagement ring, his commitment to the promise that more is coming, that the wedding is coming. And then he goes on to talk about how we've been made alive in Christ. So there's a big focus on what God has done. And it is all about what God has done, not what we have to do to get right with God, but how God has put us right with himself as we believe in Jesus. So it's very Jesus-centered, and it's hugely encouraging about the hope and the joy and the security that we have in coming to him. And then Paul adds a second dimension, because when we come to Jesus, we don't just come to Jesus. We also end up coming to one another. We come to him as individuals, but then in doing that, we each individual comes together because 
not only has God reconciled us to himself, reconciliation, that doctrine of taking two people that were estranged and distant and bringing them together through what Jesus did. He then has this great section in chapter 2 about how once you've been reconciled to God, you suddenly find you're reconciled to others who've come to God and the barriers that there used to be between you have suddenly been broken down. You discover that you are brothers and sisters in Christ. And he uses this really powerful picture in chapter two. He talks about Jesus being our peace who has made the two, by that he was thinking Jew and Gentile, the biggest divisions in the ancient world. He's made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, what's he thinking of there? He's thinking back to the temple in Jerusalem, where the inner sanctuary was surrounded by a series of courts. Around the sanctuary itself was the court of the priests. And outside of that, and only the priests could go there, of course, outside of that was the court of Israel. Though what it really meant was the court of the men in Israel who took their sacrifices in there. And outside of that, the court of the women, where Jewish women and children could go. And outside of that, the great big court, the court of the Gentiles, the only place where the Gentiles could go to worship God in Jerusalem. And Paul is thinking of that barrier that kept the Gentiles out. In fact, just a few years ago, archaeologists actually found one of the signs at the gateway that led from the court of the Gentiles into the court of the women and then Israel and the priests. And this sign said, let it be known that whosoever passes beyond this point shall take his life upon his own head. In other words, what it was saying was, dirty Gentiles keep out or we'll kill you. And that was known popularly as the dividing wall of hostility. And Paul picks that up here. He says, that wall that used to say, Gentiles, you are not welcome. Keep out. At the cross, God smashed that wall down and said, Gentiles, i.e. anyone who's not a Jew, come on in. And now men and women and young and old and people of all colors and ethnicities and languages are now welcomed in. And he says to all of them in that chapter, you know, you're no longer now foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. He's taken all these diverse cultures and made of them, he says in this chapter, one man, one family, one building. I was going to say, Paul seems to use a lot of picture language to help us understand. Very much so. His whole letters are rich in imagery. Very often imagery from the Old Testament, but also imagery from life that everyone could understand. So here this sense of being one family or one building, that Jesus is the cornerstone on which we as individual stones are brought in and we are being built together to become one temple. So there's another picture. So he's rich in his imagery, anything and everything piled up to try and get across to us 
that when we come to God through Jesus, we, we come to one another. You know, one of the pictures I, I often use as an illustration is the spokes of a bicycle wheel. And the closer you come into that center hub, the closer the spokes come to one another. And that's what it's like when we come to Jesus. All the old barriers are broken down. Do you know what? And, and if in our hearts we find that some of those barriers have not yet been broken down, then we need to take them to Jesus because they are godless things, really. They're things left over from the old life that shouldn't be there anymore. And in a world that was so divided then between Jew and Gentile, to be able to say, here's God's mystery. It's all about Jesus and his death on the cross to bring us back to Father. But it's also through that death about bringing us together. And if ever we've needed a message in our generation of the barriers that are built between people, it's this one, that in Jesus we can become one new people, one new building, one new temple, one family of God here on earth, commissioned with taking his message out to others. Paul seems to be painting a picture of how the church could be. Yes, very much so. This is it, its almost his, his vision for the church, his mandate, God's mandate, not Paul's mandate for the church. This is how he sees it living and being and it, he'll go on in a moment into the final three chapters of how that might get expressed in the way that we should live but he starts with us wanting to know who we are it, and it's a huge vision of church and listen i've been a pastor for long enough to know that you know not all churches are always the most idyllic of places we face our problems and challenges at times why because we're human and we bring our baggage with us and our opinions with us. And sometimes it takes a while for those to get worked on. But, you know, Ephesians is a great picture to say to us, guys, this is what we're meant to be like. People who are rich in our understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus. And as a consequence, how we ought to be living together. So it's, so it's a mandate and, and it's a challenge as well because of that. So a blueprint, but also he, by the sound of it, talks about how to put that into practice. Yeah, very much so. Uh, so from chapter four onwards, uh, we get some sort of very practical applications. Uh, chapter four begins with the words, as a prisoner of the Lord, then. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? He was a prisoner in the sense that he was under house arrest in Rome. But he sees himself not as a prisoner of Rome, as a prisoner of Jesus. I might be here, but I'm only here because Jesus wants me here. And of course, it was a very effective period. So he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. It's interesting. So many times in his letters, Paul appeals to us to to live in a particular way, not because we have to follow a set of rules, but because we've understood what God has done for us in Jesus. If you've understood, literally the Greek says, the calling to which you have been called, <laughs> then you'll live like this. And he goes on to talk about attitudes, first of all, long before there's any actions he says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit 
through the bond of peace because there's one body and one spirit. And so there's this appeal to let this calling be lived out as we draw upon the gifts that God has given to us, gifts to the church, and and he lists some of those gifts, apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers, gifts, he said, that were given to prepare God's people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. By the way, in passing there, it's interesting that the work of leaders in the church is not to do everything. Their work is to prepare God's people to do everything, to prepare God's people for works of service. The word prepare there in Greek was the word that was used of mending the nets of fishermen. Their job is to help fix us with Jesus so we're equipped to go out and do the work that Jesus has called us to do. And then he'll go on to explain some of how that might look in the life and culture in which they live. I was going to say, from attitude to action, I think you said. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's interesting that the attitude has to come first. Now, I don't think Paul's saying, you know, spend the next 20 years getting your attitudes right before you go out. He was far too committed to evangelism and sharing the message of Jesus for that. But I think what he's saying is it's as we let the Holy Spirit shape our attitude, so it is that these things will inevitably flow out. We'll inevitably, he goes on to say, to live as children of light. And he'll contrast that with the darkness and ignorance that the culture uh, round about was living in. But he knows this stuff doesn't happen overnight. So he'll tell them in chapter four to put off your old self. And the language he uses there is the language of, you know, putting off clothes, taking them off at the end of the day. And he's saying, you know, there are some things we've just got to learn how to take off. And he says to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its evil desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, create it to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's stuff we have to take off. It does involve our thinking, our minds being renewed, he said. And and there's stuff that we need to put on new ways of doing. And then he lists some of those. It's things like not lying, but speaking truthfully. And, you know, when we get anger, just being careful to deal with that quickly and not giving the devil a foothold. Oh, and by the way, uh, if you've been used to stealing in the past, don't steal anymore. Go out and get a job. So it's really, really practical earth. Be careful with what comes out of your mouth. Very, very practical Christian stuff that flows out of knowing who we are in Jesus and just constantly asking him to help us put off the old and put on this new life that he's given to us. He realised that in reality, life is tough. There is all sorts of influences that you have to deal with and uh, pressures and all the rest of it. So how does he help his readers here? He actually gives them some very specific counseling to particular areas. So as well as these general things, he, he 
is specific, I just need to perhaps throw this in as well, that one of the ways that we can do all this, whether it's general or specific, he says, is to make sure that we're constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the verb tense he uses in the Greek really means go on being filled. You might have had one experience of being filled, but be filled again and again and again. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Make music to the Lord in your heart, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, in many of our English Bibles, the submit to one another comes as a new sentence and starts a new section. In the Greek, it's the end of the previous sentence, a sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit is not just singing happy spiritual songs. It is submitting to one another. Ooh, that sort of feels like it could cut across the grain, couldn't it? But he'll then give examples that were so important in that culture. He'll look at wives and husbands. And having said submit to one another, so that's the general background, he'll call upon wives to submit to your husbands as to the Lord and recognizing the men at this point could get very full of themselves and start thrusting their chests and getting bossy says new husbands love your wives. Remember this is in a culture where a wife was a possession and he breaks open that. No marriage is about a love relationship. And if you men want to call for your wives to submit to you in a godly and right way, then you're going to have to start by leading. And he'll use the analogy of Jesus laying down his life for the church as the challenge to husbands. Love your wives that way. He'll talk to parents and children. He'll call on children to honor your father and mother, to obey them. But he'll also call fathers not to be needlessly provocative, needlessly nagging their kids because that won't do it he'll tackle the big issue for those days of slaves and masters now there is no way that paul could tackle the issue of slavery it would have been a seen as sedition the whole empire was built on slavery slaves are probably the biggest section of society so what he does is he starts to undermine it we'll see that in a future episode when we look at philemon but he'll call upon slaves, yeah, obey your masters, but obey them as though you were obeying the Lord. Don't look at them, look beyond them. Do it for Jesus. And then he'll say to masters, masters, okay, you've got slaves and this is the culture, but I want you to know, always remember you've got a master too. So deal with them like your master deals with you. So Paul is taking cultural expressions of life here, but bringing Jesus into them and showing how radically transformed they can be and yet still operate within the culture of the time. Why? Because of those attitudes that we just spoke about that are so important first. And I guess some of those things you've just referred to in terms of real life, real relationships, life isn't as simple as that. It's going to be, it's going to be tough. Yeah, it's going to be tough. And he recognises that at the end of the letter where he recognises that life is actually a battle. We get a section at the end of chapter six where he talks about putting on the full armour of God. And I think we can imagine him there. You know, there he is under house arrest. There'd be a, 
Roman soldier nearby. He might have been chained to Paul. He may just have been, you know, playing on his iPhone or whatever, sitting in the corner or whatever they did in those days. And as he looks at that soldier, he sees all the different pieces of his armor that he's wearing and, and sort of imagines what each one of them might be for us because he recognizes that, that we're not fighting flesh and blood, he puts it. And I think by that he means both individual human beings, but also human structures, many of which are ungodly at times. And so he says, in this fight, in this fight, put on the full armor of God so that when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground. It's interesting. He's, this is something we constantly need to do. I've known Christians at times who've said, oh, we need to put the armor of God on. Let, let's put all these pieces on. And they go through the ritual before they get into some praying. This is Paul saying, put it on now so that when the day comes, these things are in place. No soldier goes into battle and thinks, oh, we're in battle. Where's my armor? He constantly has it on and calls them to stand firm. And he, he sort of then goes through them, you know, the belt of truth fastened around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness, that righteousness that God gives to us in Christ in place, your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Take up the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. And so he goes through. He's saying to us, yeah, life is tough. There are dark powers. The devil has schemes, he says in this chapter. We're not fighting flesh and blood. But God has equipped us to be able to stand in this fight, this fight of life, not some sort of airy-fairy spiritual battle that we might get into in praying. This is about life. This is stuff for life. Put these elements of the spiritual armor on now, every day, so that you can stand in life and live out this mystery that God has called us to do. And so in summary, is the letter saying an enormous amount about the fact that church is God's idea? Absolutely. If ever there's a letter in the New Testament that speaks of the high calling of church, it's this. It is indeed God's idea. It was not a human construct. It wasn't that the early Christians thought, oh, what are we going to do then? Well, we all seem to be together. I know. Let's let's have church. Let's have a place where we could all go and sing some songs together for an hour on Sunday. Not at all. Church is God's people, wherever you are, whatever you are doing. And church is God's vision. It is actually what God has committed himself to work through to bring his purposes about. Now, to some of us, that still might seem like a mystery at times when we look at our own church. But read this letter. Get inspired with what church can be and is meant to be. And then say, Lord Jesus, come and show me how I can play my part in being that kind of church and just see what God would do in your region as you do that. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.